From the garden level of Harvard Medical School's historic Vanderbilt Hall in Boston, this is Think Research, a podcast that discusses the stories behind medical research. I'm Abby, your host. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. There are 7 million people living with HIV in South Africa, a nation of 53 million, the largest prevalence of any country in the world. PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Fund for AIDS Relief, set up under President George W. Bush, has provided billions of dollars in funding to underwrite treatment for South Africa and other countries around the world. Antiretroviral treatments are more effective and affordable than ever and can greatly reduce the chances of transmission. The current president of South Africa, unlike his predecessor, sees the benefits of these treatments and has made access to them a priority. So why are only about half of South Africans living with HIV receiving treatment? On today's episode, Dr. Ingrid Katz talks about the work she is doing to answer this question. Her research focuses on the dynamic forces that influence people to make the decisions they do and how social support can increase the chances that someone living with HIV will start treatment and stick with it. Dr. Katz is an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. She has appointments in the divisions of infectious diseases, medical communications, and general medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital, as well as the Center for Global Health at the Massachusetts General Hospital. Hello, Dr. Katz. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us a bit about your background and how you got involved in implementation research? Yeah, so uh, I'm a physician by training. I also have a background in public health. And I think everything that I think about when it comes to research definitely has a public health bent to it. My background initially was in global health and HIV. I got interested in HIV work um, in the early 90s when the epidemic had really exploded in the U.S. Um, I subsequently went on to study public health and ended up working in Vietnam uh, for a year with the Population Council, which is a reproductive health organization. Um, and also did some HIV work there. And I realized that I really wanted to pursue medicine because I felt that there was a certain component of one-on-one interaction that I was missing at at the public health level. But I knew that it would be informed by my interest in public health and global health. So that's how I decided at the ripe old age of 26 to go back and do my pre-medical requirements, and then I started medical school when I was a bit older. Um, And I do think that uh, having that experience really did inform a lot of the decisions that I ultimately made to go back into pursuing research that had a very strong public health focus and global health focus. Your research focuses on applied and behavioral research in South Africa. How did you get involved with this, and what does your work entail? I originally came to South Africa for the first time in 2008 um, at the guidance and kind invitation from my mentor, David Banksberg, who uh, was collaborating with some other individuals there and had invited me to come to a conference. I had never worked in South Africa before, 
Um, and I was very interested in going there because I knew at that time that the HIV epidemic had really exploded um, and had tremendous impact in the country. And so I joined him over there, not really sure yet what I was going to be doing, but I knew that it was going to have some sort of HIV focus. Can you tell us a bit more about what what you do on the ground, what you're focusing on right now? Yeah, so when I first got there, because my interests have primarily been in infectious diseases, which I was trained in, um, uh, and certainly a long-term focus on both HIV and subsequently um, HPV, which is the human papillomavirus um, and is responsible for multiple cancers, primarily cervical cancers, the one we know the best. I had originally thought I might move towards HPV research because I had a very, I have a very strong interest in global women's health. Um, and so we started down that road of looking at HPV vaccination, um, which had just been rolled out in South Africa, and trying to understand factors that could influence uptake of the HPV vaccine. Subsequently, over time, really just through almost anthropologic work, sitting there and um, witnessing what was going on for people living with HIV, we came to understand that the epidemic there was certainly rampant, and everyone working on the ground uh, was, was fighting so hard for people's lives. But early um, in the epidemic there, there really wasn't much in the way of treatment. Treatment came to South Africa way after it had come to the U.S., largely because there were multiple barriers in the government. Um, it was clear that the president in the um, early 2000s was an AIDS denialist and therefore did not allow um, people access to antiretrovirals. And so the country really was imploding around the HIV epidemic. And, and there were tremendous researchers. I was um, fortunate enough to work with Glenda Gray, who is a leading HIV researcher in the world and is now leading one of the major HIV vaccine trials, um, who, who really um, was breaking through and trying to get people treatment they needed. And so in sitting there and watching people come into clinics and seeing people who clearly at that time knew they had HIV uh, and knew uh, that they could actually qualify for treatment under guidelines during that era were not necessarily accessing treatment. And this was a puzzling phenomenon to me because a lot of us believe that if we just got treatment to South Africa, then of course people would want to take it. It was free and it was life-saving. There were clearly massive benefits, and yet people, not everyone, was uh, availing themselves of the benefit of treatment. And so this became my research question, to understand why people were not taking life-saving treatment. What are some of the guidelines that have changed over time since you first began your work until now that have enabled you to do more that have changed how medications are introduced to South Africa? So South Africa has a rich and complex history. Um, anyone who lives there or has spent significant time there um, can speak to the major political changes that have occurred um, since apartheid ended in uh, 1994. Um, with the rise of the ANC and 
subsequent presidencies after Nelson Mandela, there has been a shift there over time in terms of the view of HIV and antiretroviral treatment. Um, the current president certainly supports the use of antiretroviral treatment for HIV. This was not the case, as I mentioned, um, with his predecessor. So there was the issue first in country and what was changing there and the political landscape. And the vast majority of the people who were at risk for HIV infection were uh, heterosexual couples. And this was a very different epidemic from the one we were experiencing here in the U.S. So we have this epidemic exploding. We have huge seismic shifts in what's happening politically and environmentally and economically for people in South Africa and racially, certainly. And then you have the issue of just getting treatment there. And treatment was incredibly expensive. We um, finally, or you know, in the U.S., had protease inhibitors that came out in um, the mid-90s. And that was a game changer. That was a game changer for everyone living with HIV because suddenly there was a treatment combination that could allow them to have what essentially has become a normal lifespan if you were on treatment and you stayed successfully on treatment. So in the U.S., by the mid-2000s, everything had changed here. And yet there were still all these barriers in resource-limited settings, particularly um, in sub-Saharan Africa, where, where the epidemic had really taken hold. And if you look at statistics now, that is where the heartbeat of this epidemic still lies, in sub-Saharan Africa. South Africa itself has the largest prevalence of HIV in the world. So there were these massive shifts going on, and it was clear that there needed to be a large mobilization to get treatment to South Africa. And the um, global community had certainly mobilized around this issue, but there still weren't enough dollars behind this. And we actually wrote a piece about this, a perspective piece for the New England Journal about PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Fund for AIDS Relief. And this was a program that was actually set up under George W. Bush to underwrite the cost of getting treatment to South Africa. And this is what most people would say was the game changer. It wasn't just South Africa. There were multiple countries involved in getting treatment under PEPFAR. And this just changed the landscape entirely. PEPFAR was the billion-dollar elephant in the room. And we're not talking millions. We were talking billions, which was really groundbreaking for people working on this issue. So now we have treatment pouring in. We have clinics being set up. South Africa in particular was a unique country in that at that time, the former president, Mbeke, really uh, did not believe that antiretroviral treatment was um, efficacious. And so PEPFAR, the people within PEPFAR program really had to work with non-governmental organizations, academics, other people to build up clinics that were separate from the Department of Health in order to provide this level of treatment. But they went from having practically no one on treatment. Now they have, in South Africa, over 3.5 million people on treatment. It's a phenomenal change for this country. And it really speaks to the power of what 
a globalized, focused effort can do with enough resources and get necessary treatment there. Unfortunately for South Africa, there are 7 million people living with HIV. So we still there's still a long way to go. But um, PEPFAR really was the game changer. And now, um, under our current administration, there have been a lot of shifts, and it's unclear what funding will look like. Certainly, PEPFAR was built in the vein of having an emergency response. And so the goal is to ultimately de-escalate funds and have governments take over ownership. And South African government has done a tremendous job in picking up the cost here um, in terms of treatment. But this is a lifelong treatment. You know, you're not talking about starting an 80-year-old on treatment for high blood pressure. You're talking about starting a 17-year-old on antiretroviral therapy and having them be on it for life. So it's a huge investment, both in terms of resources and infrastructure. You spoke earlier about patients not taking life-saving medications. What are the barriers you face when speaking to patients? Much like in the U.S. and anywhere really in the world, when people are making decisions about their health, many factors come into play. Many factors that go way beyond an individual patient-level interaction with a provider. And I think as a provider myself, I can really appreciate that um, in a 15-minute visit or a 20-minute visit, this patient and I may not even scratch the surface of all of the things that are going on in their complex lives. And so you have these overcrowded clinics with overburdened providers who are just trying to provide the absolute best care they can. And you go into the waiting room and you'll see they're overflowing with people, who many of whom are incredibly sick, um, many of whom... Um, certainly HIV and TB walk together, and so many of whom have active tuberculosis and need treatment for that. Um, and so the providers are often left just trying to, um, you know, as, as many providers who work in underserved settings are trying to provide the best care that they can in very limited settings. So given that, what I will say is that when patients speak with providers, they may speak to some of these issues that, that they face in terms of the challenges of starting treatment, but it really requires more in-depth conversations. And I've been fortunate to be mentored by an anthropologist, um, by multiple psychologists, um, by people who are trained in behavioral economics. Um, and uh, I think that's really framed a lot of how I do my research. I think when you're trying to understand why people do the things they do, you need to provide them with the space and time to talk about all of the factors in their lives. So we do a lot of qualitative research. Um, and through that research, we've come to see that often people are looking at treatment, like many decisions in their lives, as a um, risk-benefit ratio. And sometimes the risks of starting treatment may actually be higher than the perceived benefits. And that may speak to the fact that their lives are complex, that they're often um, fighting just to get enough food on the table during the day. To sit in a clinic all day means they're not, they don't have a day of work, so they'll miss a day of work. Um, and certainly many of the things associated with HIV that may be more unique to HIV as opposed to other medical treatments that we deal with, like hypertension and diabetes, like HIV-related stigma, 
um, can certainly stand in the way of people starting treatment. You're currently developing interventions for the area. One is a treatment called the Ambassador Program. What is that program? The Treatment Ambassador Program is designed to train people who are living with HIV, who are in care, how to become ambassadors for people who have not been able to avail themselves of the benefit of treatment. And it's funded through the NIH, and the ambassadors are trained in a very specific psychological technique called motivational interviewing. And they provide that along with patient support and patient navigation, which basically helps people literally navigate the system from point A to point Z. And our goal is to really get people who have have had a very hard time or struggled starting treatment into care. And despite the fact that this this research is um, happening in a resource-limited setting, um, there's been a lot of interest in this, and I think that really speaks both to the global applicability of this research in any low-income setting, but also in the fact that we need to be addressing huge epidemics like HIV through multiple channels. Originally, we found about 20% of people who actually managed to get tested said that they did not intend to start treatment. And that was a big deal because these were people who were actually motivated enough to come in and get tested. And then they verbalized that they would not start. So this was kind of what got the ball rolling for us and really showed that this might have a huge downstream effect. Because if we're investing billions of dollars to get treatment to people, but people are not necessarily starting, we need to understand why. And so the last seven or so years have been focused on understanding those reasons and then developing um, what we hope will be successful interventions to get people into care. And one of the major themes we heard throughout our research is that social support is critical. And if you can go from having no social support to even having a little bit of social support, that makes a drastic difference in people's lives. It doesn't seem to make a huge difference if you already have a decent amount and you get a little bit more, that doesn't seem to make a huge difference for people. But if you feel socially isolated or stigmatized and you can get just a little bit of social support, that makes a world of difference. And so that was the premise for building the Treatment Ambassador Program. And I want to give a special nod to Linda Gale Becker, another phenomenal researcher in South Africa who um, is a mentor for me there um, and based in Cape Town. Um, and she um, came up with this idea of, of a treatment ambassador, someone who is living with HIV, has managed to overcome whatever obstacles are put in their way to start on treatment and stay in care. So we wanted peers to be the new social network for people. So people who might have been socially isolated, give them that person and have them um, lead them through the process of starting treatment. So we did a lot of detailed, rigorous training of people um, living with HIV who then became our treatment ambassadors. And we have done some pilot work with it now. We're very excited about the results. And now we are taking it to our full pilot phase, which will be rolling out this year. And I'm, I'm optimistic that I think we can help people who struggle. And again, this isn't for everyone. This isn't a need that's going to be there for everyone because many people start treatment 
easily. But there are definitely a group of people who are incredibly high risk who are going to need these levels of additional support. You are also working on the Standing Tall program. What can you tell us about that? So this is one that we have submitted to the NIH for funding, but we recently got some funding through the Center for AIDS Research here at Harvard um, to start this program. This is a group I'm really excited about. These are um, adolescents um, and young adults. So we know in South Africa that um, this is really where the nidus of the epidemic is occurring, in young adult populations. And we know from data that colleagues of mine have looked at that if you can get these young people into care, they will stay in care, but the challenge is getting them into care. Um, and part of that is, of course, testing, and part of that is, again, this process of we lose people between the point of testing and the point of actually long-term medication adherence. We call it the leaky cascade of care. So our, our thinking was, how can we, again, pair or match up with people who are already working on the ground? And I really want to stress that when you're doing global health research, having global partners or partners who are working on the ground who are, in my case, I'm so lucky, expert researchers with huge infrastructure makes a project like this much more feasible. So my collaborators there... Um, at the Desmond Tutu HIV Foundation, had already started a program of mobile testing units. So they're huge vans. They call them the Tutu testers, and they go around to these communities that they've already geocoded and mapped out where they know there's high rates of HIV prevalence, and they basically park themselves there. Um, and they're parked there, you know, every Monday they're at this site, every Tuesday they're at this site. And people just come in and test. Now they offer a variety of services, mostly reproductive health services, so again, their clientele is mostly um, women, young women, um, but they offer a range of services. Among them is uh, HIV testing. And um, among this population of people who are really just presenting randomly, there's about a 3 to 5% de novo HIV rate, which is massive if you're just taking a, a swath of the population. You know, if you're going to high-risk OBGYN clinics, you can see up to 20 to 25%. But in this population, where you're just basically grabbing people off the street, it's an incredibly high rate. So we're partnering with them um, and trying to help build a bridge for young people to get into care. So previously, if you were diagnosed on a van, you were basically, you know, there was some counseling on the van, and you're given a list of possible clinics where you can go get care. Unfortunately, in South Africa, because resources are constrained, there's really no young person's clinic. There are certainly pilot programs. Médecins Sans Frontières has done a lot of work around this. Um, the Desmond Tutu HIV Foundation has done a lot of work around this to build up programs for young people, but there isn't any sort of national program for young people. You're either a child or you're an adult, and you become an adult around age 12. So if you're anywhere in between, you're in the adult world. And what that looks like when you're 13, 14, 17, newly diagnosed with HIV, is you're sitting in a clinic with 30, 40-year-olds, a packed clinic, and you might be missing school, and um, you know there's nothing there that's set up for youth in any specific way. So we're partnering with them, and we're mirroring um, our, our plan on some work that Médecins Sans Frontières has started around adherence clubs, um, 
which is a program that they set up in the area where I work um, in Cape Town. They actually work in a township called Kailicha, and we're working in a neighboring township called Guguletu, where um, basically these clubs are set up for people who are in care and doing well. They can actually exit the main public health clinic system and come to these kind of community centers where they can come once a month or once every other month, get their treatment, spend some time with friends, get a little counseling, and move in and out pretty quickly. And people love it. And people do exceptionally well in these treatment clubs. And it's really a win-win, right? Because it it debulks some of these massively overcrowded clinics. And it's wonderful in terms of care provided. These have traditionally been offered to people who have done incredibly well in care already. So they've proven themselves. They got into care. They were in treatment. They had to be in treatment, I think, for at least four to six months. They had to have a viral load that was suppressed, which means that you were on treatment and adhering to treatment. Um, And then they were able to kind of graduate to this. We want to offer treatment in clubs for young people right from the get-go. So at the point where they're diagnosed on this van, we want to say, hey, look, we have this option for you. It's, it's a youth treatment club. Come on over. It's going to be youth-friendly. We're going to make it inviting. We're going to offer you treatment on the spot. We're not going to make you wait. And we will be here for you to provide care. And if people obviously need any sort of clinical assessments, we will be partnered with clinics that we can just up-refer them right back to a physician as needed. But most people do incredibly well on treatment. So it's our hope that we can get people, these young people, who clearly will benefit from being on treatment right into care and just sidestep that whole um, structural barrier that I think young people face and provide a lot of the socio-behavioral counseling that we already know is so important. So we're developing, again, a socio-behavioral component to this that will be provided by counselors who have worked with youth in these youth clubs. What is your next research project? I'm really interested in trying to look again at some of these more specific populations. I mean, the big work that lies ahead for the HIV community, the global HIV community, is some of the exciting work that's being done around vaccine development. Um, But I think as long as we are in this place where we have treatments that are effective, um, it's really about I think this is the this is the golden age of socio-behavioral work because we know what is going to work out there in terms of the um, the clinical profile for people. We've seen it now. We've seen it for 20 years. We know what works. We know that it extends life to basically a normal life expectancy. So now is this time to really do this important socio-behavioral work that I think will be critical no matter what. And again, this translates over so many chronic diseases, right? I mean, diabetes, hypertension, um, cardiovascular disease, any, any chronic disease where people benefit from being on long-term life-saving medication. But HIV is particularly unique for all the reasons that we've discussed. So for now, I'm focusing on um, on really these high-risk populations like young people. Um, we're also thinking about working with uh, men 
we call, there's uh, an expression in South Africa called the missing men because they seem to be a very challenging population to reach. I think largely it, it extends globally. Women come into care for many reasons, often reproductive health reasons, um, and then you can kind of wrap them into care in many other ways. But uh, young, otherwise healthy men are very hard to get into care, and that's not just in South Africa. That's all over the world. Um, and I think this is an interesting population to think about ways to kind of design novel techniques to try to bring them into care. Thank you again for joining us, Dr. Katz. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you for having me. Next time on Think Research. We went into corner stores in Baltimore City and we wanted to give kids information about calories, but make it matter to them. So you're a kid, you walk into the store, you go up to the beverage cases, and you would see one of four signs, one at a time, randomly posted. And the sign would either tell you what the bottle says, which is it has 250 calories, or it would take that exact same information and say it differently. So it would say that it's 50 minutes of running, or five miles of walking, or 16 teaspoons of sugar. And um, we did the study a couple of times, and the effects were, I think pretty impressive. Dr. Sarah Bleich talks about her work trying to educate the public about how consuming sugary beverages can impact health. Harvard Catalyst Think Research is supported by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Subscribe to Think Research on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find out more about our podcast or suggest topics for future episodes, visit our website, www.catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch.